Good morning. It's good to see y'all here this morning. Hope everyone's doing well. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors on staff here as well. Great to have y'all here this morning to celebrate our child dedication and uh, to meet together for worship and the teaching of God's Word. And this morning, uh, we're going to continue on in a series. We've been uh, working our way through the Gospel of John in the New Testament. And today, the real privilege of getting to uh, continue on, we're going to be in chapter 7 together today. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to John chapter 7. We'll be working our way through this chapter. Um, and as we do, let me, uh, let me say a brief prayer for us. Father, thank you uh, that you are present uh, with us. Uh, God, that you uh, are for us because of Christ. And that's amazing. Uh, God, give us ears to hear. uh, Give us uh, minds to understand. And uh, God, a heart willing to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, had a great uh, last couple days this weekend. Uh, Your church leaders, the elder board, was away on a planning retreat Friday night and Saturday where they spent a lot of time in uh, prayer and um, planning and laughter and enjoying one another and and really thinking about uh, you guys and uh, the work of God here in Central Austin. So just really, really admire those guys and had a great time with them. It's going to be fun to get to continue on in this passage together. If you've got your, your Bibles here, let's, uh, let's begin diving in right with uh, John chapter 7. We'll hit the better part of this, uh, and we'll have to move quickly. It says here, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, and he did not want to go about in Judea, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he, he, also, uh, he went also, not publicly, but in secret, uh, now at the festival, um, now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, "Where is he?" Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, "He's a good man." Others replied, "No, he deceives people." But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, "How did this man get such learning without having been taught?" And Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he seeks the glory of the one who sent him is the man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? He said to them, I did one miracle and you're amazed. Yet because Jesus gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people from Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from, and when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here of my own authority, but the one who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him and they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? 
The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. (laughs) And Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you won't find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go to where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you'll look for me, but you won't find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. So others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. This is God's word. This is a, it's a a long chapter and there's a lot of dialogue in this, right? Right? But it's all, it's all one account. This is the week where Jesus, it's, it's really the third account that John tells of Jesus going into Jerusalem, into the city of Jerusalem. And you, you catch the backdrop there, right? He's hesitant to go in because he's actually worried for his life, right? Or he's, there's, there's legitimate concern uh, because of, of his teaching. Uh, but this, and it, here's what we're going to draw out here today. Kind of two big ideas about knowing who this Jesus is that we see in the dialogue here. One is this. Knowing Jesus requires knowing Jesus. I'll explain what I mean in a moment. And knowing Jesus gives the continual life-giving presence of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Knowing Jesus gives continual life-giving presence of of God the Holy Spirit. Okay, so first, knowing Jesus requires knowing Jesus. Here's what I mean by this. One of the things you see in this dialogue is there's a lot of confusion around Jesus and who he is. And you see John even tries to capture a lot of that in the course of this chapter. And some of the things, one of the things I think he's trying to point out to us here is that misunderstandings can actually cloud our ability to know not only who Jesus is, but to our ability to know him. And I want to draw out three of the things that that John focuses on here. It's three things that really can cloud our ability to see the truth and, and more importantly, to know Jesus ourselves. And that's, those three things are, are poor listening to Jesus' claims, a poor understanding of the Old Testament, and elevating religious tradition above Scripture. So first, poor listening to Jesus' claims. So if you understand the Jewish backdrop here, you had a, a lot of... It was very common for rabbis, you know, teachers, Jewish teachers, to, st- to, to teach in the temple where most of this account takes place in Jerusalem. They'd sit there in their chair and they would, you know, expound what they learned. And it was kind of this understanding that these people had learned from another rabbi. And not only did that kind of, uh, it was somewhat of their education system, but in a way it was kind of their credentials too. Like I'll go and listen to uh, Rabbi Jake because he sat under Rabbi Justin or something like that. You know what I mean? Like people would use this at, and people would be like, okay, like I kind of know who you are, where you've come from, that kind of a deal. And uh, Jesus here is, is not fitting the mold. He's not purporting to come from another you know, rabbi that he learned under or something like that. And they expected, that's what they expected. If you look at verse 14, he says, Not until 
halfway through the festival did Jesus go up. There the Jews were amazed, and they asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? That's the system there, you know, kind of the, the cultural norm they're, they're referring to there. And he says, My teaching isn't my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And so he's, he continues to give the same thing. And if you've been reading and kind of tuning in as we've been tracking through John, you'll see this is actually a very repetitive thing that Jesus says. He's fairly straightforward in his, in his self-claims and in where his teaching comes from, that he, it comes from the Father. I'm not teaching you something this rabbi taught me. I'm giving you something directly from God the Father. And yet Jesus, um, these people were, were constantly amazed um, because they weren't, they weren't really listening <laughs> to his words. It, it, he wasn't, there's some things that Jesus says that are particularly confusing, but these, here he's using very straightforward language, right? Um, I'm, from, I'm from the Father. I'm one with the Father. I'm going to return to the Father. And their only response is to say, well, you know, where, <laughs> where's he going to go that we're not going to be able to find him? Um, you know, is he going to go to other parts of, of, of Greece and really at that point Rome, these colonies where you'd find Jewish communities scattered throughout there? Is he going to go like hide outside of our national borders, but among our people scattered? And they're just not listening, right? That he's making this claims about who he is and he's going to return back to the one who sent him. And they're like, we don't get it. They're, poor, they're poorly listening to Jesus's claims and his words. And it, it, it leads to confusion. Next, you've got a poor understanding of the Old Testament. So here you are in the nation of Israel where the Old Testament was taught regularly. Uh, some people even had access to it uh, themselves in, in different portions of scrolls and the like. Um, but one of the things you have here is just a lot of misunderstanding about what the Old Testament itself said about who the Messiah would be, who this promised one would be that Jesus is claiming to be. And there was real misunderstanding about what the Old Testament said about this Messiah. And you see some of that even in John 7 here. One of them says... Here's one idea. You see kind of three distinct concepts in this chapter that are misunderstandings. Uh, some, some in the crowd thought that he came from just kind of some unknown magical place. Like when the Messiah comes, he's just going to come. <laughs> you know, there's like, if uh, we'll just look at it. Verse 25 it says this. At this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word. If they concluded he is the Messiah... But we know where this man is from. He knew he was, he was in, from Galilee. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. And, and I think it's this kind of idea. And maybe, it's, I, I think I probably would have had this idea that there. So I'm picking on them. But I think it probably, we all might have been in their shoes. If we had, it's the idea that if we, if, we had, if we know where this person has come from, then they can't be anything other than we would expect. He's a guy from Galilee. <laughs> And so here he is claiming to be more than that. And, it's, and the mental molds are being, they can't break. This, you know, it feels like this is what's happening with him here. He's just another guy from a town. None of us would, you know, none of us would have imagined this. Uh, others thought that he had to come from Bethlehem. Now this idea is right, and it comes from Micah. We'll see this in a minute. But no one listened closely enough to find out that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Galilee. Verse 41 says this, uh, others said he's the Messiah. Others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah will be born of David's descendants and from Bethlehem? Um, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. 
So you got this other concept where they're like, well, he has to come from here. And we know he's from here. But, it, you know, there's not the time to find out, well, okay, he actually, he actually was from there. <laughs> you know, a lot of people were born in one place and part of their childhood is raised in another. It's the case with Jesus. Uh, in a third group here, you see um, some of the religious leaders thought that the Messiah, you know, couldn't have ever lived anywhere else but Bethlehem. You see that at, at the very end of the passage. Um, I didn't read this before, but it says uh, in verse 45, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees and asked, Why didn't you bring him in? They had tried to arrest him. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guard replied. You mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted, Have any of the rulers the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, in chapter 3 you might remember, and who was one of their own number, asked, Does does our law condemn a man without at least first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? So they replied to Nicodemus, Are you from Galilee too? Look it up. You'll find a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now the Pharisees knew Micah 5.2, which is one of the key... Uh, pro, you know, parts of the Old Testament telling about the Messiah coming from Bethlehem, and it, it which just simply reads this. You'll remember Linus reading this on Christmas when you turn on your television. Um, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And this this would have been a really well known passage, uh, you know, to the to the Pharisees here. They would have known this promise. But they're reading into the verse, which, by the way, is a very common mistake to make when you're reading or studying the Bible, to bring your meaning and apply it in there versus actually reading what it says. They're reading into Micah 5, 2, that Jesus can't, you know, the Messiah would have only ever lived in Bethlehem or some, some, uh, some concept like this. And again, it's this, um, the idea here is a misunderstanding of the Old Testament can cause us to miss who Jesus is and the ability to know him. And uh, last year, a, a poor under, um, I'm sorry, elevating religious tradition over scripture clouds knowing Jesus and knowing the truth. Um, look with me at verse 21. Jesus says, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now, what's going on here? You know, you might remember this from John 5, just two chapters ago. Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath, and the the Pharisees and the leaders are kind of in an uproar, right? But why are they in an uproar? And and here's part of it. I mean, actually, this is the crux of it. So you had these extra biblical teachings, these writings of the rabbis, which in a lot of cases added on rules, and they would even use this terminology, that were like a hedge or a fence around the law. So if God gave this one piece of instruction, they'd say, uh, well, well, also don't do this or this or this, so that you're like five steps away from the line of ever breaking this command of God. And so you, you see this principle a lot played out in these rabbis' writings. And this is an example of it here. So, that, you know, you see God uh, giving the command to honor the Sabbath because it reflected his, his creative work in building the world. And this was the day when, though it's mysterious what it means, that God rested, we're to follow this pattern. 
But the rabbis added on, well, what does it mean to not work on the Sabbath? And they'd created this long list of very specific things, which none of which were actually in the scriptures or what God said. They added on, and, and here Jesus is breaking kind of their mold of rules that they had followed in, uh, in their, you know, pommeling him for it. Here he is healing a man on the Sabbath, and he's saying, you're not getting it. And in a way, you're elevating religious tradition over the written word of God, the scriptures themselves. I know it's a lot there. Let me just draw some strings together on this idea that knowing Jesus requires knowing Jesus. Uh, Let me say it this way. Knowing Jesus, you can have the confidence that you can actually know him. When you, when you see pass, the passages yourselves, you, you get a lot of dialogue here of people going off hearsay or incomplete knowledge or lack of personal knowledge. Know passages yourself. Be an active reader of the Bible. Be an, it's like being an active listener. Are you listening for what's being said when you open up the pages of Scripture? Don't hear what you want. Test personal understanding and past teaching. See if it aligns with what the Scriptures actually say, with what Jesus is saying about the Old Testament, about Jesus, about who he said he would be. Let me, let me say this as well. For some of you, when you open the Bible for what you might think of as kind of devotional reading, you can have, and I'll place myself in this, I've had this thought, you can have this thought that I can either inform my mind or I can warm my heart. But there, it's a false dichotomy. And let me just say this. When you understand Christianity rightly, it always involves the mind. Now, it doesn't stop there. But if you shut off your mind from understanding the truth of scriptures and what it's, what it's trying to present to us, though it might feel like a shortcut to, to having temporary comfort or a sense of, uh, you know, of comfort from God in the moment, if it, if it comes from a lack of understanding of the scriptures, then it will ultimately sell you short. Because Christianity is based on understanding. Now, it's more, it's more than just you know, filling your brain with facts, right? But it begins with the mind and, and thinking over what does this mean about who God is and, and what's Jesus claiming here and, and should lead to prayer. Oh, God, I want to know you more as I understand this and wrestle to understand it more. And, and sometimes that is hard. But if you shortcut it and, and, and don't go down that path, it will ultimately leave you short and your life won't be changed. Knowing Jesus requires knowing Jesus. But lastly here, and I really want to camp out on this. It's really the pinnacle of this passage. But knowing Jesus gives the continual life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit. As we said before, you know, this chapter is about a trip Jesus took to Jerusalem. And it took place at a particular time. It's important to know when he was there. He's there at this festival. It's called the Feast of the Tabernacles. And some translations call it the Feast of the Booths. Um, it's an annual feast that lasted like seven or eight days. And it was, here's what it was for. If you remember either your Old Testament history or uh, your Hollywood history, think back to Charlton Heston leading Israel out of Egypt where they wandered for 40 years. But this whole memorial festival was about remembering the 40 years when Israel wandered in the desert, when they had left Egypt before God brought them into the land of Canaan, which would be Israel. And they're in this, in this these 40 years, and God's provision in their life during that time. It's a feast to remember how God provided for their forefathers during this kind of crazy 40 years. And so it's really interesting. Here's one of the things they would do during that festival week. They would, uh, there would be this procession every day that would go from the temple 
to this spring they called the, the spring of Gihon. And uh, the, the priests would get this golden pitcher and would fill it up with water from the spring. And there would be kind of this, you know, parade kind of thing going back to the temple. And they would pour out the water uh, around the altar. And it would be their way that they could remember how God had provided for Israel during those 40 years where they were, you know, without a home. Now, how does that remind us? How would that remind, you know, why would they do that? Well, they're remembering back to a really key part in Numbers chapter 20. And a lot of you will be familiar with this passage. And in Numbers chapter 20, you've got this account where, the, where they've come out of the Red Sea. And they're, you know, they're, they're kind of past that point. God's done actually a lot of pretty miraculous things. Not only, you know, the sea itself, right? But providing food, though they hadn't, you know, tilled the soil and all sorts of other provisions for them. And yet they're at this point where they're thirsty and the, you know, then this account, the people are coming to Moses and Aaron and they're, they're not remembering God's goodness and provision and they're grumbling. And Moses and Aaron go before uh, God in their kind of portable temple, the tabernacle. And they're like, God, help. You know, these people are grumbling. I think they're on the verge of rioting. And he says uh, to Moses and Aaron, go speak to this particular rock in the middle of the camp and I'm going to make water flow from it, and it'll be enough for everybody and all the animals, and people will be quenched. And they do that. In fact, it's a whole, it's another story, but Moses is so, at this point, kind of angry and just kind of ticked off, honestly, at, at Israel that he doesn't just speak to the rock. He takes his staff, and he kind of whacks it, and, and you kind of get a little insight into what's going on inside of Moses here. But nonetheless, God honors that, and this water gushes out and says, you know, it, it provides for... Uh, for all the people during this time. And that's what they're celebrating here at this, um, you know, in part during this festival. Some of you might see where, where this is going. <laughs> Jesus is, is he's here at this festival and he's watching the entire proceedings going on all week. He's mostly laying low, right? It's, as he start, John started the chapter with. Um, he's looking back at the time for this glorious moment in Israel's history but a moment that demanded a look forward because it was incomplete. Here, you know, God had provided short-term salvation and the short-term quenching of physical thirst. But these events were pointing beyond themselves to a greater salvation, to a a greater quenching of thirst, you might say. Uh, And Jesus, you know, he's, he's been laying low, but he knows that he himself is the ground zero for the fulfillment of the story. And he, he, he can hold it in no longer. And it says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, he stood up and cried out. Now, rabbis thought sitting down, taught sitting down. I think he's trying to, to make a statement here. He's standing. And he's not just speaking. He cries out, as uh, I believe the NIV says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. He's saying that he's the ultimate source of satisfaction and salvation. That's why he came. Forgiveness of sins and the meeting of the heart's deepest need for satisfaction and joy and delight. Now, John, think about this for a moment. John's writing this book, this gospel that we're studying here. He wrote it after Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension. And he adds this comment. Look at the next verse. 
It says, by this, Jesus meant that the spirit whom those who would believe in him were later to receive. Up to this time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, what's going on here? Why, why is John saying it that way? Well, think about it. Up until this point of Jesus' ascension in, 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 in Acts, or Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was only, only played kind of unique and occasional roles in people's lives. Look at a couple of them here. Or just listen here with me. Genesis tells us this, that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters during, during creation. As God played out his creative work you know, in, in, uh, in, the, in the world. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, would empower people at special times for certain acts or events. Um, tells us this in Judges 14, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily. It says in Judges, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, Genesis 31, the same thing about Joseph, about Moses and the, his 70 elders in Numbers 11, about Gideon in Judges 6, about King David himself in First Chronicles 28. In other words, like the, the role of the Holy Spirit at this point was like to come in for special times to empower people in special ways, but it wasn't, but it wasn't like his presence would stay with people. You, you tracking with me there? It was kind of his temporary you know, role the Holy Spirit would play in people's lives up until this point. Now, I don't really understand how this works because like, wouldn't we all, if you're you know, a person who has their faith in Christ, wouldn't you say we all believe that God's all present, Right? That's the, I think there's a whole uh, doctrine around that, right? Like his omnipresence, if you want a nice word for it. So how, how does this work, that there's a way, you know, which God is, is, um, is present, but he's not all the way present, or something like that? Um, I'm going I'm to jump ahead here to, later in John, because in John 16, Jesus says this, just to kind of drive the, his point here. He's talking to his, his disciples, and he says, um, very, uh, very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Because unless I go away, the advocate, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, you get in the context, we'll see more in a minute. The advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. In some way, Jesus himself, they have, you know, uh, God incarnate in their presence, and he's saying, it's even better if I go because you will get the Holy Spirit. Now, how, how, like, how does all this work? I, I don't know. You'll have to ask. Um, Jake said he had explained it after service. But I, it, let me just say it this way. This probably doesn't get all of it. But in college, I, uh, my first year, actually, I, there was this annual conference that would take place there. And it was mostly a student-initiated conference. And they would bring in these big speakers. And I thought it sounded fun to be involved in it because I'd heard of some of the past ones. And it's like, hey, I've read some of their books. And so I just jumped in. It was kind of a volunteer thing. And some of those speakers that were even coming in that year, like I'd read their books. And they were good writers. And I was like, I feel like I know them. And then they would come in and they would speak to our campus. And I'd be like, wow, I feel like I know them even more, you know, like it's one thing to hear, to hear their, their text, but now I'm seeing them and getting their passion and their knowledge and all that sort of thing. But because I was on the logistical team for that, like for a couple of them, I even would take them and drive them to the airport. And in one case, uh, take them to dinner. You know, kind of give them a good experience while they're on our campus. And getting to sit across the table one-on-one with these people, it's like, wow, like, now I feel like I get it. Like, I know this person. I really appreciated all that they were bringing in their writing and their speaking. I don't know purporting to say I'm understanding how the presence of the Spirit of God works in your life. But there, Jesus is clearly saying there's degrees to knowing him, and the giving of the Holy Spirit 
is some of the closest, you know, you can experience, right? Uh, so what does the Holy Spirit do in the life of a Christian? Well, a lot of things. Filling, uh, empowering, encouraging, emboldening for witness, gifting to, to minister to one another and to the world community around us. And all of these things are very important. Let me tell you one I think Jesus is trying to draw our attention to here because in my, the way I understand it, I would say this is a foundational role that the Holy Spirit plays. And what I mean by that is it allows, in a way, us to really in, tune into all these other roles the Spirit wants to do in our life. And, and it's this, that the, the Spirit glorifies Jesus to us. The Spirit glorifies Jesus to us. Look at this in verse, uh, well, I think I've got it on the slide, but it's still in John 16. Uh, continuing on from where I had a minute ago. He says, I, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak on his own. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. What he's saying here is that the finished work of Jesus on our behalf will be seen in your eyes and mine with more and more and more power and depth and impact and richness as time goes on as we walk with God. This is one of the roles he plays in his life, in our lives. And just imagine here for a moment, someone inherits a box from their great-grandmother. They're sorting through it and like, I don't know what to do with this stuff, but they, they find a brooch. It's from your great-grandmother. People don't really, we're not high brooch society right now. We should bring it back. I'll leave that to you, someone out here. But it, maybe they just set it on their jewelry box stand or whatever, and they don't really think a lot of it. But it reminds me of my great-grandmother, great, great memories. Um, but, it, you know, just a, not a lot of thought given. And then one day on a whim, say they take it to a jeweler. And uh, he gets his little, you know, jeweler eyepiece. I don't know what it's called, but kind of puts it under there, right? And does that whole thing. And just a few moments of examining it, he, he's, you kind of hear him kind of like, hmm, hmm, ooh. And then maybe, you know, the eyepiece falls out. And he's like, do you know what you have? And, you know, this rare piece lost from generations before that's, of, you know, innumerable worth. You know, that person's going to go home differently, right? Wow, look at what I have. And I've had it all along and I didn't even know. The Holy Spirit is like that jeweler's eyepiece in our lives on the work of Christ. The more we walk with him, it helps us to see it. helps us to get it in increasing ways. Jesus said, he will glorify me. And Jesus in this passage today says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What God did once for Israel to quench physical thirst, he'll do continually in the lives of believers to satisfy spiritual thirst in the deep needs of our hearts. So who's that for? Who's, who's that, that promise for? Who, who can access it? Who's Jesus talking about? Well, it's right here. The thirsty. The thirsty. Those who are aware of their spiritual need 
and their inability to fix it and Jesus' ability. You know, all of us have these deep longings for life, uh, for joy. Our problem is we, if, if we're aware of it, we try to meet it in things that, that can't, in things that proclaim to meet joy, to, meet our, to give us life, but continually fall short, right? I mean, think about some of these things, and I'm talking to myself as well as everyone in here. You know, maybe it's a, a career or a relationship. Maybe it's respect from your peers or the approval of people or, or money or the security it can give you, um, power, any of those things. A lot of those things, are those inherently evil? Absolutely not. What's the problem with them? They're not fountains. They can't give the ultimate thing, right? And here Jesus says that fountains of living water can flow from in. All you need is need. So many of us don't have it, or we look to meet that need in the wrong source. C.S. Lewis says this in The Abolition of Man, one of my favorite, one of his short lectures. He says, if we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. If you're a believer in Christ in here, what, what, what do you do with this? If, let me just ask this. If, it's, if you don't feel like it's your daily experience, what do you do? Let me ask this, you know, what do you do? What would you do if you saw a person in, even in this room that you're like, you know, the bit I know of them, I would really like to know them more. I would like to have more of a friendship or relationship. And what would you do? Spend time with them, find a way, you know. Uh, I'm going to sit by them at the next, you know, time we go to lunch is church. And then, you know, maybe we could go to coffee, connect. Uh, I'm going to go out of my way, maybe even shift some things in my schedule to prioritize getting time with them to, to work on that relationship? Um, do, do, do relationships develop instantly? No. But with intention, they, develop, they can develop beautifully, right? Everyone knows the richness of even one good friendship, right? Do, do that with the Lord. If growth is slow, and there's some days where the satisfying experience of, of his presence in your life is lesser than other days. Say that to him. God, I'm not experiencing you today how I want. I want more of you. Do you want more of his presence and joy? Be honest in your prayers and yet continue to pursue him when things feel dry. James 4 says, Come near to God and he will come near to you. In the cross... In the giving of the Spirit, He already has. In your daily experience, you can have more of Him too, if you want. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for 
the words of Jesus that for me just are so insightful and life-giving. Thank you for the promise uh, that streams of living water can flow from within. God, we all want life. We want, uh, God, the, the deepest part of our being um, and our needs that exist there to be met. And Lord, thank you that you speak not only to surface needs in our life, but to our core needs. Lord, uh, may, we, may we look to you, and as your word says, find you uh, in our day-to-day experience that way. Thank you for the sending of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.